0: Hello everyone. Welcome to the October edition of the CNS Journal Club podcast. My name is Jeffrey Traylor and I'm a resident at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas and I'll be the moderator for today's episode. Today we'll be talking about posaconazole uh, for glioblastoma and we're joined today by uh, our author uh, from Penn State, Dr. Mansori. Um, Dr. Mansori, would you mind introducing yourself for us? Sure thing. Hello, everyone. I'm uh, Ali Reza Mansuri, Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at Penn State. And we'll, we're also joined today by uh, Dr. Ganesh Rao. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself for us? Sure. Uh, I'm Ganesh
1: Rao. I'm the Chair of Neurosurgery here at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas.
0: And finally, uh, Dr. Vega, the co-chair of the CNS Journal Club podcast, is also joining us today.
2: Yeah, thank you for the introduction, Jeffrey. Uh, and again, my name is uh, Raphael, and uh, currently the director of the Brain Tumor Center here at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston.
0: Wonderful. So, Dr. Monsori, just to start us off, would you mind just giving us a brief overview of the article, uh, the protocol in this case
3: for uh, your paper in neurosurgery? Sure thing, Jeff. Uh, so this is a phase zero clinical trial, mainly utilizing microdialysis catheters to interrogate the um, tumor interst- uh, blood and tumor interstitium so this is based on exciting uh, cl- uh, preclinical data that we had in vitro and in vivo that we found posaconazole was able to inhibit GBM tumor cell growth in mice. And before we launch into large scale studies, looking at overall response rate and survival, it's critical to establish whether these drugs even cross the blood brain barrier, accumulating the tumor at a sufficient enough concentration and do what we expect them to do from a biological perspective. So that's why um, taking the strategy we thought would be useful. So patients who are deemed to have a GBM who are going on to surgery and are stable enough to take a drug for several days before surgery, up until until we have steady state dosing, uh, would be enrolled in the study and they would take the drug. And at time of surgery, the tumor is taken out and we try to sample both contrast enhancing and non-enhancing regions, send it to the lab with mass spec, try to look at drug concentration and also lactate pyruvic concentrations. And at the completion of the surgery, we insert microdialysis catheters. Uh, If there's any enhancing portion left, we put it in that. And in addition to non-enhancing portions, if there's no enhancing segments left, uh, we just put the catheter in the non-enhancing portion. And what this allows us to do is to next, over the next 24 hours, we can measure the concentration versus time profile of the drug and lactate and pyruvate. So kind of giving us a neuropharmacokinetic profile as well.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for that summary. Um, Let's go ahead and get started with a discussion with our guest faculty. Dr. Rao, did you have any questions for Dr. Mansory?
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting concept. Um, And I wonder, you know, some of the biology behind it's very interesting too. I wonder if Dr. Mansory, you can maybe describe in a little more detail how cancer cells exploit the Warburg effect to survive in hypoxic conditions, and then how this Um, sort of aberrant glycolytic metabolism can be targeted therapeutically.
3: Sure thing, Uh, as we all know, any malignant cancer cell uh, tries to utilize the Warburg effect to survive under hypoxic conditions. So cancer cells can generate more than 50% of their ATP from glycolysis rather than oxidative phosphorylation. And they do this by enhancing uh, glucose flux. And therefore uh, this allows them to produce ATP faster per glucose molecule particularly on these these hypoxic conditions. For GBM, it seems to leverage hexokinase two as a key component of the Warburg effect. And it has an important role in glucose flux into glycolysis or the pentose phosphate pathway. And its transcription is tightly regulated by HIF-1-alpha, glucose, insulin, glucagon, among other molecules. And previously our team had shown that downregulation of HK2 inhibits aerobic glycolysis while promoting oxidative phosphorylation as shown through increased oxygen consumption, decreased extracellular lactate, and increased expression of genes involved in oxidative, oxidative phosphorylation. So given this strict dependence of GBM cells on HK2 as a pivotal enzyme, and the gene networks associated with it, we found it to be an ideal therapeutic target. Very interesting. Um,
1: why, and for the audience that may not be so familiar with with brain tumor treatment, can you describe why the blood-brain tumor barrier remains a challenge for a primary brain tumor treatment? Um, I think a lot of people think that just because you can get contrast enhancement, that suggests enough of the disruption to permit therapeutic agents from entering the microenvironment,
3: but that may not may not always be the case. Correct. Absolutely. Um, We have done a great job curing brain tumors in DISH and in mice for many years now, but unfortunately, not many of these have translated in the clinical setting, and um, there's many issues that are at play, but a big part of this is the blood-brain barrier. If you think about it, our best uh, drug that we have against glioblastoma, temozolomide, at the peak brain-to-plasma ratio, it is only 20%. And as we know, contrast enhancement in essence basically means leaky vessels. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a disruptive blood-brain barrier. And when we use gadolinium as our contrast agent, the particular region that is permeable to a compound uh, to gadolinium, it means that it's permeable at best to a compound that's as big as gadolinium. So things that are bigger may not necessarily get across. And this doesn't take into consideration the many efflux pumps and other mechanisms that cells have for splitting the drug back out. So therefore, short answer to your question is no, it doesn't necessarily mean that just because we have GAT enhancement we have uh, 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 reliable blood-brain barrier disruption. However, it is a starting point. And as we know, at least some portion of the blood-brain barrier may be leaking in this area and it can be a um, starting point for our studies.
1: Can you uh, give us a sense of the success of preclinical studies with PCZ? And the reason I ask is that it's sort of a leap, I think People, uh, most investigators uh, or most practicing physicians, I should say, don't always appreciate the amount of work that has to go in the preclinical setting before you take trials to humans. So what kind of threshold do you have to cross and what was the specific success you had here before you, just, you were able to go to a phase zero trial?
3: Yeah, so we took a very stepwise approach. Uh, first, it was an in silico screening strategy with silencing RNAs and then in vitro testing against not just U87 mouse models, uh, tumor cell lines, but also glioma stem cell lines, uh, two of them. And then finally moving on to in vivo again, using multiple cell lines to really definitively prove our case. So after we found our drug candidates using this in silico approach and in vitro methods, we moved on to mice. And there, after that, we're able to show that mice bearing glioblastoma and treated with, both ketoconazole and posoconazole at a dose that would be clinically translatable and safe in humans, uh, increased their survival, reduced tumor cell proliferation, and decreased tumor metabolism. And in addition, we're able to histologically show that treatment with uh, posoconazole resulted in an increased proportion of apoptotic cells. So, Again, we've cured mice a lot with, from tumors. This doesn't necessarily mean it translates, but we felt confident enough that we have all these data lining up that uh, the next logical step to see if, if we can emulate this in humans.
1: Great. Um, I guess my next question is really related to this drug um, and the way you got to it. So I'm curious to know how you know you, you took a drug that's been out there in the in the uh, you know pharmacological world for a while and, and you know, have sort of repurposed it. So I guess, can you give us a little more background on how you came to find this drug? Um, and and do you think there's an opportunity for repurposing
3: other drugs for the treatment of GBM? So this was a, a build-up on a prior work done in the lab that showed the importance of hexokinase II. And uh, it's been also shown that it's not strictly just what hexokinase, what role it plays in glycolysis, but also the network of genes that it interacts with. So the steps that we took was basically try to treat uh, different cell lines with the uh, siRNA pools against HK2, extract our RNA, and assess the genes that were differentially expressed, either upregulated or downregulated in um, siRNA treated cell lines versus control. And then from that we identified pathways. And then performed a connectivity map analysis to uh, cross-reference this against the database of FDA approved drugs that would affect these particular pathways. Among that, we found 15 candidate drugs, 10 of them were available for testing, and then these drugs were then tested. Uh, we performed a viability assay looking at uh, the viability of cell- tumor cells, but also normal human astrocytes and neural stem cells, And we want to make sure that we pick a drug that does kill tumor cells at a reasonable concentration, but not uh, human astrocytes and uh, stem cells. From that list, uh, ketoconazole actually emerged and we knew from the literature that mebendazole is another azole that has been tried as a repurposed drug. So we picked posaconazole because it is uh, a more friendly drug, less drug-drug interactions, some pretty good data on blood brain barrier penetration. So then we tested that and we showed that the EC50 the effective concentration at which half the tumor cells can be killed was again within the safe clinically translatable dose against tumor cells, but the EC50 would be much higher to kill normal uh, human astrocytes and neurostep cells. So we deemed that this would be a more translatable drug. So that's how we got to it. And then in terms of opportunities, you know, uh, a major challenge with glioblastoma is the many, many aberrant metabolic and genetic pathways that have been associated with it. But this also means that we have the opportunity to exploit these. So hexokinase 2 is just one of these um, central pathways, but there's many out there. And there's plenty of examples on clinicaltrials.gov. If you do a search, you'll find plenty. So metformin is one that has many um, trials registered uh, for it. Medbenazol, as I mentioned, disulfiram, SSRIs. Some of these are at the clinical stage. So phase one, two trials, and some of them are preclinical. But uh, it's very exciting. And uh, you know, as surgeons, we have the opportunity to really be at the forefront of that by interrogating the brain and its environment with these microdialysis catheters and really trying to see if they do what they're supposed to do.
0: I did have one uh, follow-up question. Um, Since I I know that uh, this is an anti-metabolites and uh, with the most recent WHO update of 2021, that GBM is now defined by IDH wild type status, uh, do you expect with this uh, drug that there would be any different effect in IDH mutant gliomas like a grade four astrocytoma, for example, based off of your data so far?
3: I think that's a great question. It's very timely, of course. Uh, I would certainly not rule it out, and this is something that we would need to look at. So we would be looking at the data of our IDH data of our tumors and see if there's any differential response. It's kind of hard because, uh, this being a phase zero study, we only have five controls and five treated tumors. Um, but as hopefully we, we get to a phase that we can expand it and look at this data. Um, I would note, though, that HK2 plays a role at the very early part of cellular utilization of glucose before the beautiful Krebs cycle. Uh, But then again, it's also important to emphasize that posaconazole affects HK2 transcription and the many genetic and metabolic pathways associated with it. So it's not just direct inhibition of the HK2 enzyme. I see.
0: And then one last question from me. Um, I saw in your protocol that you expected to see an increase to posaconazole concentration in contrast-enhancing regions rather than uh, non-enhancing. Is that just because that's the more metabolically active part of the tumor, or is there another reason? That's actually a great point. Uh, so
3: yeah, in our in vivo work, we had shown with mass spec that P- uh, posaconazole does uh, cross the blood-brain barrier but it was difficult to ascertain really in which part, given that how small the samples are. Uh, Just by the notion that we have regional variability and and the permeability of the blood-brain barrier and contrast enhancing and non-enhancing regions, this was our hypothesis, but I think that's also a very good point if you envision that the non-enhancing parts are potentially lower grade grade components of the tumor. um, That's also a very valid point. It's a very
2: interesting you know discussion. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, and again, it's nothing too uh, challenging, but just thinking about the microdialysis catheter placement, what would you think about doing this like in in the sense of like an open resection you know and having the ability to deliver locally, and how that would be different? I don't know.
3: you mean intraparenchymal delivery of the drug yeah. Um so there are some groups looking at that so uh, I think out at Mayo Clinic uh, with low grade gliomas it's really cool concept um the pore size of the catheter is bigger than ours so ours is 20 kilodaltons theirs is 100 and what they do is basically they have they expose the tumor they put these catheters in different regions and the drug candidate drug goes in and as they resect the tumor they take that part around the catheter out and look at the metabolome around that, and I think that's very interesting. Um, but these things, uh, if you see them, they're very tiny, very flimsy, so I can imagine it's very hard to operate around these things. Of
2: course, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it is an interesting concept, that's all. And, um, and I guess one of the last things, and this was for your own personal opinion, is what would you find is like the, I guess, the biggest barrier you know, in trying to really convert this into, um, I guess, in a clinical setting? You know, like, there's a lot of folks interested in these, you know, dialysis uh, catheters and whatnot, but it's it's, we still haven't used them, right, in our clinical practice yet. So Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if this, is this the one?
3: (laughs) Yeah, there's many nuances. So what we didn't talk about is a lot of in vitro work that we did beforehand with the catheters. So for example, because these techniques are plastic tubes, um, you have to make sure that the drugs are not going to stick to the plastic tubing. And uh, they can't be too hydrophobic because they need to dissolve in solution. Um, The pore size is obviously a factor, and um, the rate at which the catheter, uh, the pump runs. So you can have anywhere from uh, 0.1 to 5 microliters per minute. So, and then uh, the the temperature at which you store them. (laughs) So, all those things that have to be considered. So, we had a whole set of experiments in terms of different rates, different storage conditions um and then finally we picked one microliter per minute that's how we came to it um so that's the so not all drugs are amenable to that that's number one and as i mentioned these are very fragile so they can break and um and we're learning more and more as we work with them how to uh uh, troubleshoot them so i think that's been a major barrier and um so For these patients, for example, it works out because um, the patients, uh, after receiving 5 LA, we do 5 LA guided resection, so they need to be in the hospital for a good 24, 36 hours after the resection anyway, so this works out in terms of schedule. But if you uh, otherwise would have sent the patient home, again, this doesn't work if you wanna collect a um, sample over 24 hours, Um, yeah.
2: Oh, I'm very excited about the future on this, so. Yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah. hopefully we're successful. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I think that that's uh, all the time that we have right now. If there aren't any more questions, um, I want to thank our author for joining us today, Dr. Mansouri from Penn State, as well as our guest faculty, Dr. Rao. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to thank the listeners for, for joining in as well. Um, we're all very excited about these results and, and really look forward to the results of this trial. Um, and so I do want to add that this podcast activity is worth 1.5 CME uh, and is complimentary to all CNS members and can be accessed on the online catalog. We hope that you'll join us next month for the November Journal Club uh, podcast. Thank you so much.